0: Notes with Jen Rafferty, where we move music education in new directions. Hello, I am so excited to bring you this week's episode of Take Notes. I had the pleasure of speaking to Lorenzo Diaz Amador, who is a neuroscientist in Portugal. He is currently a PhD student at the University of Melbourne in educational neuroscience and innovation studies, and is currently investigating innovation and how it can be modeled as a skill, and specifically how it could become an educational outcome. And through his research, he is also exploring the neuroscience behind creativity. I met Lorenzo on Clubhouse, which if you are not on Clubhouse yet, go find a friend who is and get an invitation to Clubhouse because this is a humongous platform for people who are just trying to make the world a better place and connect with each other in meaningful ways. And Lorenzo always has these wonderful rooms where he facilitates conversation about neuroscience, creativity, and often how it relates to the learning process. And I just loved everything he had to say and invited him to come on to this podcast, and we had a wonderful conversation. So let's nerd out a little bit about neuroscience and music education. So Lorenzo's research is mainly about innovation science and how it relates to educational outcomes or in his words,
1: it all culminates in uh, trying to model uh, innovation as a skill or innovativeness, I guess you could call it uh, as an educational outcome. Uh, Essentially, can we train it? And if so, how can we assess that we train it? You know, that's the, the general gist of it.
0: Ah, yes. The A word assessment. And at first, it makes me cringe a little bit to think about assessment and something like innovation, but we really talked about the importance of assessment and why qualitative and quantitative assessment is necessary for determining educational outcomes.
1: I I, I think there's power to, you know, qualitative or qualitative and quantitative, you know, like observational or really just bring everything together as an assessment. Uh, I I personally um, with my, with my research so far, It all indicates, and I will only say indicates because I don't want to bias my, uh, you know, my conclusions, but it indicates that if innovation is indeed a skill, it's something that's like higher than, say, creativity or uh, problem solving or reasoning. Right. It's like integration of all of these things. And it's like almost like an emergent uh, descriptor or emergent uh, capability from bringing those things together, right? It's it's, it's rather contextual, right? Um, and so can we put it down to like a quantitative thing? Like, oh, you got a three out of five on innovation. No, uh, that, that's not possible. Um, can we say, uh, you know, are you having an innovative type of thinking? Uh, you know, something similar to like, are you thinking in systems? Are you thinking as a design? Are you thinking conceptually? I, I think that's more the possibility so in terms of assessing it, it's more kind of trying uh, learners or more specifically children in the context um, to put things like, you know, bringing in creativity to solve a problem, but also, you know, uh, critical thinking, which in of itself is also wide, but uh, critical thinking to understanding, okay, this is creative. Is it useful? Is it useful here? Okay, does it have impact, right? Um because at, at this point, what I have is the most, the, the thing I can definitely say I have, you know, I, without uh, getting into my conclusions, is um, at a fundamental level, in a like discipline agnostic perspective, uh, innovation is about really not just novelty, but impact.
0: Impact. It seems that the key to innovation is impact. And I was curious to know about some examples of some of these larger innovative ideas that had big impacts.
1: Uh, An example is alphabetization. So using letters like we do in the alphabet, uh, you know, the 26 letters, um, going from uh, pictograms and ideograms, something similar to what the ancient Egyptians were doing or the Chinese use, you know, just like thousands of uh, characters to have, uh, you know, your words in your day-to-day Going from that to like 26 characters uh, that you can bring together, that was an innovation, right? It it really uh it it perhaps wasn't on purpose, but whoever developed it had a massive impact. And it was an innovation first when it first came about. I think it was in around Egypt that it first came about. That was like absolute innovation, right? It was the first time we had it, changed things up when it developed. Separately, uh, but a bit of time later, uh, more towards you know mainland Europe, it was also a massive innovation. Was it absolutely uh, an innovation? No, because it already had been done. Mm-hmm. Was it still impactful to that society? Yes, and so it was an innovation for that context, right? So I think that's really the crux of innovation is having that impact. And so to assess it, if you're being innovative, is can you see how something novel can be impactful in that context.
0: So if innovation is about impact, then it seems as if our music classrooms have to create some sort of problem-solving or problem-based learning in order for students to really be innovative in their ideas within systems thinking. That also requires a lot of creativity. It also got me thinking about how we can use music education as a way to inspire global citizens that the impact of music and students' music education can be far-reaching. So then I asked him the big question. If we were to teach innovation, what are the competencies that our students would need to learn?
1: Okay. Uh, Once again, it it indicates, uh, because you're really getting to like... the ends of my research, so I don't want to <laughs> bias myself.
0: Okay, we won't forget it uh, for everybody. We're indicating here.
1: Indicating, potentially. Uh, having that uh, like ideation, novel ideation, so coming up with new ideas. Um, then getting those ideas and um, this goes through like applying it, obviously, to understand its potential impact, but trying to get that novel idea and see how it could impact something. So how does that solve that problem? Systems thinking, I think, plays into it because you have to understand how that uh, novel solution impacts the systems around it and what the systems are. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's really about the system upon which the innovation comes that the impact will, will be perceived, right?
0: So he referenced the four C's of creativity, which were created and designed by J.C. Kaufman and R.A. Beghetto
1: Or the mini C is like your internal creativity, something that comes into your mind, changes what you think about and how you think about yourself. That's creative, but it only really matters to you. Then there's the little C, which is like in your day-to-day being, you know, creative. Uh, You know, you find a different way to uh, cook a steak, you know, it's probably not going to change much for the world, but it's going to change your day-to-day and possibly of those around you. And then you have the pro C which is professional creativity. So, you know, those are like people at the top of their uh, expertise, they're doing amazing jobs, you know, uh, they're valued for for their expertise really, but they're not making like a world impact. Uh, And then you have the last one, but it's basically the creativity. It changes the world, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it starts really to mix in with uh, innovation. Uh, I would say rather than being a great creativity, what makes a professional level creativity become innovation is the impact. And so that's where it goes from creativity to impact.
0: While we teach our music students to be expressive, oftentimes creativity is left outside of the realm of what we do inside of the classroom, particularly within the traditional ensemble setting. Because if we're really being honest, the last thing that we want our altos or clarinet players to be is creative, Right. So how can we use some moments within the music classroom to foster creativity and encourage creative thinking?
1: Um, And actually, I found it funny, as you were saying, you know, we usually associate uh, creativity with the arts. But the truth is, when you get into a, a music class or an art class, it's like, do this. That's not creativity. That's being artistically productive.
0: So how can we incorporate some creativity within our lessons? Lorenzo had a couple of ideas about that.
1: At home, you don't really have your instruments usually, right? Uh, I mean, of course, like I play the saxophone. I would obviously have it at home. But if you have the percussionist, they're not going to find a timpani at home, right? Uh, so what can you do with that? Is is trying to push people to find a way to reproduce something that they know in another way, right? And, and that's, I, I think, uh, the, a nice way to start is taking something you already know really well and like slyly finding another way to get there right because humans suck at being completely original I, i i know from like a neuroscience perspective uh we know that we can't really imagine new things you know it's all based on previous experiences and if i'm not mistaken there's kind of this notion in the music world that all potential like aesthetically pleasing sounds have been used it's just different combinations of them now right so music has been done now we're just finding new ways to do it, but it's the same music basically, right? And so if you start off with that with kids, just really like, okay, you know how uh, in the timpani, I don't know why that one stuck with me, but the timpani sounds, right? Find something in your house that sounds kind of like it and now bring it and try to play it in the class, right? It's going to sound awful probably because it's not true and it's not an instrument, but getting to put them to push that way and see how, you know, uh, the, the artistic expression or you know, other aspects uh, can be achieved through a way that is not that well-structured, can also be done, is one way to push for creativity because you're just like stimulating their uh, thinking by pushing, okay, you know this much. Now from all your other experiences, let's get to the next part, right? And it's a continual incremental process of, okay, now you have this more information, bring that in with all these other things, Now let's go to the next part and so on and so forth, right? So you can start with finding something that sounds like a timpani and then you can end up with, okay, now find something that sounds nice to you uh, and you want to incorporate that sound into this, right? Getting to a bit of like songwriting. Um, So those incremental things and really just like pushing more and more and more, uh, I think is the best way to stimulate creativity.
0: And creativity is great. But we also live in a world where it is really important that you are correct. And making a mistake can be very difficult to accept, especially as a young student who just wants to get it right.
1: In the educational model, as you say, it's like saying you have to be right, you know. So how can we say, oh, it's okay to make mistakes, but you have to be right. And that's where you come into the whole question of the assessments, I think. Um, if if you maybe take away some of the assessments, you know, this is a topic that needs to be discussed more properly, but if you take away some of the assessments um, or you shape them as, not as a yes or no, uh, they, are you right or not, you know, uh, but to something more, okay, did you progress? And I think that that's one way to really inst- find that balance. Uh, I personally think, Uh, kind of reflective assessment could have a lot of power there, Uh, you know, observational assessment could have a lot of power there. Uh, So that way you have the perspective from inside the person and outside the person of, uh, okay, the the, the person might have been wrong, but that they learn something from that moment. And in in that moment, by saying, did you learn something from that mistake, you make the mistake uh, be useful rather than shameful. Um, but you know, this really like expands on a lot of things. It's like, how do you shift people's perspectives on making mistakes? You know, how do you shift people's perspectives on failure? How do you shift people's perspectives on progress? It's, it's a big shift. Um, I, I think there's a bit of work going that way, uh, you know, um, but it's an, it's, it's a big task.
0: Changing people's perspectives is a really big task, but guess what? You're listening to this podcast right now and hopefully there are some really interesting things that you're thinking about and perhaps it affirms the work that you're already doing and maybe it's a way to look at things a little bit differently. How do you approach making mistakes in your classroom and how can you use that to support learning and foster creative thinking and critical thinking and problem solving and perhaps innovation and use it in a way that students feel comfortable and confident in what they're progressing towards instead of necessarily just getting it right all the time? And so while I had Lorenzo on the line... I also wanted to ask him about neuroscience and music. So I had him talk to me a little bit about what happens to your brain when you're playing music.
1: You bring in a lot, right? You're using your hands. Uh, You're having to, at the same time, keep an internal rhythm, right? You got to be on beat. You got to know if it's 4-4 or, or, you know, so on. Uh, You really got to be that in the back of your mind. You got to be doing, you know, uh, fingering or hitting the right things at the right time. Um, so it, it's really pushing you, it's really pushing you, right. It brings uh, that. And then it also, I guess, if you think about musical cognition, it, it includes, you know, being, uh, mostly being able to read sheet music or you can do as I did with this cheat and kind of don't read it, but just remember what you're supposed to play, uh, and then keep the rhythm, you know, uh, for example, a saxophone, you gotta have the right, uh, you know, um, tension in your mouth have the right breathing process. And so all of that really stimulates uh, your thinking and your functioning. And therefore, that in of itself uh, develops your brain. I wouldn't say improves, uh, but it develops your brain because you're practicing something, right? And you're not just practicing it, you're playing it. So then there's like that added concentration and focus. So you're really just, uh, this is where you could say, you know, the brain is a muscle because you're really training those things and pushing it further than they had before and uh, creating, you know, uh, that that practice which imprints itself on the brain, right? So then with all that practice, you become good at reading music, uh, having that uh, sense of rhythm, which obviously, uh, I mean, it can translate to, now you know the rhythm when you're dancing or you know the rhythm, you know, when you're just listening to music. Um, it also helps with the focus, you know, uh, Practicing music, knowing how to play, especially if you're, you know, orchestra or a band, um, you have to be focused on what you're doing, but also keeping in tune with the rest. Right. So all of these things, they just create, um, they just push your brain and then you're good at those things. And uh, music has been found to really just like use the majority of the brain. Like uh, fMRI studies show that like lighting up the brain, Uh, especially if you have people who are um, highly sensitive people. Uh, they have an even more, uh, like, even even bigger reaction to music, so their brain gets even more excited. Uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you get this, but uh, getting a lot, like, you know, uh, goosebumps and that, uh, you know, chill in your back with, like, uh, I don't know, from Beethoven to uh, Soulja Boy, anything can happen. You know, those are the highly sensitive people. They'll just be like, oh, my God, that music, and just flares up your brain. Uh, but what what I really find interesting is the potential for dance uh, in developing what are called executive functions. So executive functions is things like uh, attentional control, uh, cognitive flexibility, inhibitory control, uh, working memory, uh, all of the things that basically you employ when learning, right? So you have to keep uh, the working memory, for example, is when you're trying to do mental math, you have to keep it in your mind what you're doing and solving the problem. Uh, you also use it, for example, when you're trying to remember a phone number to then call. So that's like the working memory because you're working with it, right? Um, then you have attentional control and inhibitory control, which all come into helping you focus and you know block out distractions and focus on what you're supposed to be doing. And cognitive flexibility, as it sounds, it's about being flexible, adaptable, and really comes into like creativity and uh, remixing, uh, you know, the concepts you have in your head. To come up with a new, a new idea and uh there's a specific type of activity that has been found to be consistently across all studies develop executive functions in children and this type of activity is called mindful movement uh which is basically any activity where like you're not just stretching your arm you're thinking fully about like that movement you know you're like okay now i'm stretching my arm I'm, you know, strengthening my elbow and I'm putting it that way and I can do it stronger. I can do it more slowly. So that really like that having that uh, focus on what you're doing uh, apparently seems to really uh, help in that development of those uh, executive functions. So activities like this include uh, Tai Chi, uh, Taekwondo, you know, those things where. Uh, I I think, uh, I don't know if you've seen, but I think those, you know, videos of uh, a group of people doing Tai Chi, like being really concentrated in doing those movements. Just imagine that, like the concentration of doing this and keeping the right path and the right stance. That's mindful movement, right? And there hasn't been much research done on this, but I think uh, certain types of dance or really, you know, disciplined approach to dancing, fits into that category, right? Because, I mean, you can't do ballet without thinking about, you know, is your foot really doing a pointe or all those. Uh, And I think uh, uh, hip hop uh, has an extra potential for having a great uh, effect on development because hip hop music has been found to have also some some improvement on cognitive development. Uh, For some reason, there's just, Something there in that type of music that really connects, I think it might be because, you know, uh, when you consider rapping, it tends to be quite lyrically complex, you know, especially if you go to people like, uh, you know, Eminem or Childish Gambino or or Kendrick Lamar, at least to me, they'll have like amazing uh, complexity in their lyrics and storytelling. So if you want to follow that up, you really got to be like, you know, fast working your brain, okay, following the story, following the beat. So I can see how that really pushes your brain to, to you know, practice those things. So I think, and this is something I would hope in the future to be able to study, but I think that hip hop has a huge potential to, to if fully explored, to really help in the cognitive development of people, right, because it brings in that mindful movement, Right. You, you can't pop and lock without really being sure of like when to stop or not, you know, and bringing that, you know, uh, complexity and the lyricism and sometimes in the beats uh, of hip hop. Uh, I think there's like a huge untapped potential.
0: So hip hop music. How cool is that? And It was actually the second time that I heard a reference to hip-hop music and brain development. Earlier in the week, I had read an article about how hip-hop music also helps with language acquisition. Hip-hop's really good for your brain, I guess. So how do we use mindful movement in the music classroom? He explained that although mindful movement is something altogether its own thing. It cannot actually be used in the music classroom as a component of a rehearsal. Movement itself can be helpful for a variety of reasons.
1: The more there's a variation and combination of stimuli and approaches, you know, so not just writing on the whiteboard everything, you know, okay, now let's try it out and let's let's think in our heads, let's like build with building blocks, let's uh, play this uh, scale, uh, let's say, you know, walk as if we're trying to play this scale, all of those different components, uh, having more stimuli uh, really helps is in getting better uh, memory. Basically, you're encoding a memory with a stronger, um, strong, stronger weight, I think is the best way to explain it. Basically, the more stimuli that are associated with the memory, the stronger it will be, the better you will be able to remember it, you know, uh, if you can remember how you were moving with it or what you were listening to, when you were doing, when you were seeing, uh, all of those things really incorporate into the memory and then you have more ways to access that memory, therefore it's a stronger memory, right?
0: So while movement itself is fine, movement with the music making experience will just encode those memories in a much deeper, more meaningful way for your students. I always like to end my interviews with the same question. What is your dream for education?
1: My dream for education is to be uh, more heavily based on uh, evidence. Uh, obviously, I have a bias for neuroscience. Um, but the reason I say this is uh, one might think it is, but it actually really isn't. It's, it's mostly a mix of like traditional approaches uh, or alternative approaches that people think, oh, no, this should be fine. Uh, but where's like, you know, the hard evidence research, right? Um, for example, learning styles, that came kind of from like a bit of left field from the traditional, uh, you know, you're going to learn what I tell you.
0: Yes, you heard that right. Learning styles, auditory, visual, kinesthetic, not a real thing. More about that at another podcast.
1: So... Uh, I really want like evidence to be at the core of it. And at the moment, I feel that part of the obstacles for that is policy. But, you know, an ideal world is where uh, evidence is at the core of it. And, you know, hopefully uh, neuroscience really is at the core of it. Um, I actually was having a discussion just earlier about what is the goal of education. Uh, And I think at its heart, education is just, one aspect of development, right? It's just one aspect of developing a person. And so do we want to make the person develop their brain to the maximum potential they could? Uh, yeah, of course. But I also know at the same time that sometimes that might not be what is needed because we're still social animals. We live in a society. Uh, if you were to just focus on developing your brain, um, as, you know, that one uh, single mighty track, you probably wouldn't be able to get the resources that would actually help you to develop that brain, right? So you need to to develop it, get the resources like money or whatever, uh, and then redevelop and then, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And um, I think one way to go for that is if we really base on evidence, we know exactly how to approach that and we allow people to have a life where they can thrive, be it by developing themselves or by applying what they have already developed which is what I like. I like to see I was like okay, so what's supposed to be happening in development, can we make it better? You know, uh, for example, we know that from about 9 years old to 14 15 years old is the moment when there's the highest uh, like rate of uh, development in the child's brain when it comes to social cognition. Uh, so you know, in that moment they're really coming from a perspective of just themselves, they're their own world to oh, how do I fit into this world, right? It goes from like self to self in society how do we take that and make it better? You know, how do we, should we go to schools and make that the point where we teach people, you know, civics lessons, you know, should we reinforce history at this moment over physics? Uh, should we, you know, teach people communication and collaboration at this moment to really reap that big moment of change, right? Because development overall is, uh, you have your genetics, which gives you like the probabilities of what you can become, what you can turn into, uh, and then, In that initial phase until about 25 years old, when as you were saying, you know, prefrontal cortex starts to really mature. uh, up until that point, our environment can be quite important. It's gonna influence what the probabilities of our genetics end up looking like, right? So the genetics gives you the possibilities that you can have, and your environments kind of filter those out and say, okay, now we're gonna focus on this, on that, and that, right? After that, then your genetics are kind of more. Powerful as you age, like basically as you age, you start to look more and more and act more and more uh, like your biological parents. Um, you know, your IQ is going to be very related to uh, your mother, and so on and so forth. So genetics becomes uh, important again in a sense, or more influential. But you know, from birth to twenty-five, if we know how to tailor the environment to like optimize the brain development. Education, or really for me, I say it more as learning and development because education is more of the official thing, right, the structured thing. Learning and development based on neuroscience could be just so much better, right? If we just know take what we know and optimize at those different moments in the development, I think we could really push people to become their better selves, you know, in that very uh, wishy-washy phrase. But I think quite literally we could.
0: Yeah, I definitely think we could. And that's what this whole thing was about. I want to be able to create a platform for people to share their ideas and to highlight this really interesting intersection between all of the different social sciences in this very large ecosystem of education so we can continue to make school better, to allow children to become their best selves. If you're interested in learning more about Lorenzo's work or want to work with him, the easiest way to reach him is actually on Clubhouse. So just search Lorenzo Dias Amador and you'll find a whole schedule of his rooms where he delivers such wonderful information and engages so many people from around the world in such important conversations, specifically about neuroscience and often how it relates to education. Until next time, I'm Jen Rafferty. Have a wonderful day. This podcast was brought to you by Jen Rafferty Music, cover art by Good Neighbor Art with Molly and Draco, and music by John Kuechner.